You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for December 2016. Today's episode is titled, Hiring the Right People. The book of Genesis states, The universe as originally created was good, but mankind rebelled against the Creator. This means that human beings are by nature biased to disobey against God. For humans to survive in God's universe, however, they must obey His principles. Organizational leaders and managers must hire the right people, those in the process of transformation, and build cultures that support Christ-centered transformation. People limited to common grace have limited ability to reach their potential. Workers, however, who are being transformed by Christ are empowered to fulfill their potential. And in the process of fulfilling their potential, these people will facilitate organizational excellence by delivering world-class value to those the organization serves. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The Implanted Word, Hiring the Right People. Well, this morning we want to continue uh, with our study of the book of James, and we want to talk about James chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. The title of this section, uh, that at least the title I've put on it, is The Greatest Gift, The Implanted Word. And so we want to talk about what James has to say about that great gift. But first let me just uh, set a context for you. Uh, the book of James, I've been studying that for a number of months now and asking the Lord, you know, how do I understand this book? Uh, as, as you know from our prior studies, it is a homily. A homily is a series of practical uh, studies or practical lessons that are compiled into a list. And sometimes it's hard to see how a homily connects because it looks like they're just a series of random things that are listed. And But as I prayed over this and thought, thought about it, I came up with something I wanted to share with you as part of this teaching. And that is uh, what I call the seven W's. Uh, everything in this book, it looks to me, it relates to one of these W's. The core W is wisdom. Wisdom is a skill to live life, to live all of life. In every area of life, what you need is wisdom to live well. And so as you get wisdom, you have wisdom on how to walk. Walk is your your lifestyle, the way you go about living. That is your walk. Furthermore, as you get wisdom, you have you have guidance on how to use your tongue. That is your words. Now, your words reflect Christ, the purity of Christ, the purpose of Christ, you know, all that God has called you to do in Christ. Furthermore, wisdom gives you guidance on the works that you are called to do. So as you look at uh, your life and you try to make decisions about what you actually do, what actions you actually take in every area of life, These are your works, and you need wisdom to make, you know, the right decisions, to do the right work activity, whether it's your family, your marriage, the workplace, your Christian community, every area of life, you need the grace for choosing the right works. And then we have wealth. Wealth is is the financial assets that we're given to execute the will of God in our lives. So God is all about you were doing, having his will executed according to his ways. Then you have worship. Worship is, is all about what it means to really serve Christ, how to really be a servant of Christ. And finally, there is warfare. That is how we conduct our war. The war is against the, uh, the, the enemy of Satan and things that oppose Satan. So that is the war we're engaged in. And there's also an illicit war, and that's a war that's driven by the wrong motives. 
And as I'm sharing with this you, I, this with you, I just thought of another W I need to put in here. And that is will. The will of God versus the will of man. We've got to let the wisdom of God inform us as to what God's will is. So there's another W. So we're going to go to eight W's. And I think you can relate everything in this book to one or more of these W's, whatever the particular passage is. So I just thought I would share that with you, in part because uh, it blessed me to think it through that way, and also in part because of as I've read the commentators on on James, I don't think the commentators have a lot of revelation about how this book fits together, because it's such a practical book that assumes you already know a lot of theology, and I think we still are jaundiced in many ways in how we view Christianity. We're jaundiced in favor of the idea that people come to Christ so they can go to heaven. And that's not the whole picture. That's part of it. The more complete picture is people come to Christ so they can do the will of God while they're here on earth. And when their assignment, their race is completed here, then they will transition to heaven. But there's very definitely a reason, a purpose for you being here on this earth. So I think that's in part why the commentators have not been as clear as perhaps they could be on exactly what this book is all about. This is the New Testament version of the Proverbs, pithy statements that don't necessarily look like they're connected, but I think they are all very connected, and the heart of it is wisdom to live the will and ways of God. That's the real heart of all this. Also, this book is built around commands, and I've mentioned to you before that I think the what we call the Great Commission is largely misunderstood because we take that as an, ev- uh, as an evangelism mandate, that we're supposed to go all over the world, preach the gospel, and win people to Christ. Well, again, I think that's an incomplete picture. So when you look at Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, which is the clearest presentation of the Great Commission, and some would argue the only presentation. The only other clear presentation or semi-clear presentation is the end of Mark, and that particular text is questioned by a number of Bible scholars as to whether or not that was really in the original manuscript. So, But Matthew 28 is not questioned. It is clear. And it tells us there to go and make disciples, not converts, disciples. Disciples are true followers of Christ who think and act like Christ to make those disciples and we do it with all ethnic groups means means that it's every human being on this planet, in every country, every language, every culture, it doesn't matter, everyone is the target. And the way we do it is through two means. Number one is we baptize, and we baptize those who we see some evidence of Christ in them, and then we train them to obey the commands of Christ. That's the part that I think is really misunderstood because we have such emphasis on grace, and grace is very true. We come to Christ by grace alone, through faith, and we exercise faith in Christ through the empowering presence of Christ in us, enabling us to exercise that faith. Faith doesn't come from us. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Faith is not from us. Faith is comes from God working through us. So we have this sense that, that you know, Christ, it's all about grace through faith in Christ alone, and we miss the obedience component. And the reason I think we miss it is because most people, when they start talking about obedience, they think we're talking about legalism, and that is not true. Legalism is a 
means by which you are trying to make yourself acceptable with God, and you can never do that. No one can. The only way we can be acceptable with God in our fallen state is to be born again, to be regenerated, and Christ alone provided the basis for that. His work was the only perfect work that God could accept, and now God has accepted his work on our behalf, and now we are saved through faith in Christ. So once we have come to that realization that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, our obedience to Christ does not save us, but our obedience to Christ validates. It reveals the fact that we are saved. Someone who says they know Christ but doesn't walk out that reality, according to 1 John chapter 2, there's no basis for believing that person really knows Christ at all. So obedience is a natural byproduct of someone who's truly been born again. And so when Christ says to us in the Great Commission to baptize people and to train them to obey the commands of Christ, we've got to take that seriously. That, that Christianity is very much engaged in training people to obey Christ. So what are the commands of Christ? Well, they're, they're voluminous. The New Testament and, in fact, the Old Testament as well is full of these commands. So James is... In his book, he gives us a number of commands, and what I've done is synthesize these commands by section. Um, and so in the first uh, five sections that we've looked at of this book, I, I've, I've just summarized these commands for you here, and I'm going to just read them real quickly to you, and then we're going to jump into this next text. In, uh, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he gives us a command that we're to rejoice in trials. And that means to be metaphysically aware and steadfast in the trials of life, knowing that God uses these to purify and prepare us to be his servants. So God is very redemptive about about the circumstances of life. No matter how hard they are, God is there doing something good. And then verses 5 through 8, the, there's an imperative here to ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom in faith, that is without doubt, believing that God is good, and he gives his children the wisdom they need to do what he's called them to do. The next imperative is in verses 9 and 10, and this is really about money. Let the temporally poor, that is the people that don't have much money, boast in their spiritual wealth in Christ, that is they have eternal life. Let the temporally wealthy boast in their spiritual wealth in Christ, knowing the severe limitations of temporal wealth. Temporal wealth can never solve the problems of life ultimately. It's only a tool to enable us to align and obey God. That's all wealth, temporal wealth is. Real wealth is the spiritual wealth that comes from knowing Christ, the wisdom and discernment and the skills that we develop in walking with Christ. That is real wealth. Then verses 13 through 15, we have uh, another command. Don't blame God for trials. This is really about causality. The cause of trials is your own sin. God is good. He's immutable, redemptive, unchangeable, and internally consistent. Therefore, he cannot tempt you to sin, wishing you for you to fail. That would be contrary to his nature. He doesn't work contrary to his nature. He uses testing caused by your own sin or by the sin of others to redeem you and to sanctify you. And finally, verses 16 through 18, we have this. Instead of blaming God for our trials, always recognize that he is the unchangeable source of good in all of life, and the greatest gift is the gift of eternal life. So I want to play off of that and go on into 
talking about our section for today, James 1, verses 18 through 21. And let me uh, just read the text to you, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. And then I'm going to share with you my what my synthesis of the command, and then I'm going to illustrate this particular text using Apostle Paul as an example. So James chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, of his own will, this is talking about God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Knowing this, my beloved brothers, let every person be, and, and be here is a very strong be, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Very, very powerful text that speaks of the tenses of salvation, and it gives us a progression here that we want to really pay attention to. He starts out talking about the sovereign will of God in saving people. He says that of his own will he brought us forth, and that word for bringing forth means to give birth. It's a reference to the regenerating work of the Spirit. That is the purview of the Holy Spirit. We can do nothing to regenerate ourselves. It is totally the work of Christ in us to regenerate us. This is the past tense of salvation. You have been brought to Christ sovereignly by God. We did nothing to deserve it. Nothing, we had no role to play in it. We now demonstrate the reality of it by expressing faith in Christ and now living progressively more aligned with the will and ways of God. The agency for our regeneration was the word of truth, which is why it's important that we are teaching the word. We're proclaiming the word and we're modeling the word, the word of truth. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, according to John fourteen six. He is the incarnation of truth. And we, if we're living like Christ, we should become increasingly incarnations of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of all his creatures. Like of all the things he's created, he's chosen to touch mankind. And specifically in this time where we're living between the two advents of Christ, those that come to Christ now are being taken to another level and to where other people can see a level of living that's not common, a level of living that really should be attractive to those that the Holy Spirit is working with. So we are the kind of first fruits. That was a, obviously some imagery that, that the Jewish people, the Jewish uh, recipients of this letter, and these were Jews that were in the dispersion. They were dispersed all over uh, Asia Minor and into Europe as a result of the rebellion of Israel against God. That's when the dispersion happened. And so they were very familiar with Old Testament Scripture. And now Christ has come, and James is helping them to understand the Old Testament in light of the coming of Christ. So he uses a lot of Old Testament imagery here, both in terms of specific references throughout the book of James to the Old Testament, as well as just allusions to various things that that they would have been very familiar with, like first fruits. Uh, Proverbs 3 talks about how we honor the Lord with the first fruits of our harvest. It's a picture of how we, of, you know, giving the best to the Lord. And so we are kind of a picture of Christ on the planet. We represent him, and our lives should be reflective of that reality. 
And then he says, know this. Now, this word know this is really not in the text. It's inferred by the translators. There is a conjunction here, but it's, it, it's not the word know this. The word know, there's several words for know in the Greek language, and none of those words are used here. This is simply a little conjunction here that's kind of like, therefore, my beloved brothers, let everyone be. Now, this is a very interesting use of the word to be. It's second person singular. Now, in English, we have the word you, that's second person, and when we say you, we don't know if that's singular or plural, because it could be either one. It could be either singular or plural. But in the Greek language, there is a grammatical difference. You can read the grammar and tell the difference. And he uses second person singular here. He says, you be, you individually. This is a very personal imperative. This is a command, a personal individual command that's intended for every one of us individually. It's not a collective command saying, you all do this. No, it's you individually, you do this. Okay, And he says, you be quick to hear. Quick to hear. Now, he's talking about now how to live as first fruits of Christ, what that looks like. It's a, he gives us this first command. You be quick to hear. This is, he gives us two commands in here, and this is one of them. I'm going to synthesize both of them into kind of one summary command here in a minute. But you need to recognize this is a starting point to be a great listener. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You see, the standard by which we are going to be evaluated is always God's righteousness. And the only way we will meet that standard is based on the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. That's why salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. I trust Christ has paid the price for my sin, and now I need to live in light of that truth, that reality. And so if I'm going to do that, I'm going to learn to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, because the anger of man does not produce righteousness. Now, that's an amazing reality. Um, just a little quick little illustration of this. Um, I manage some property for my family, and I, I, I hire services out. And one of the persons that I, I hire services with is a very godly man who, who I, I deeply respect. He's a very, very good servant, very faithful. I like to pray with him every week, and I just enjoy uh, knowing him and walking with him, and I really enjoy using his services on the property. And we recently had a situation where a tenant moved out, and the tenant was supposed to be vac- so vacated a suite uh, on a certain day. The next day, uh, you know, this my servant went in there to check it out and found out the tenant had not fully moved out. And so the following day, he made arrangements to meet the tenant there to finalize the move out, which now, which is two days after when he should have been moved out. And my tenant agreed, but then my tenant didn't show up on time, and it caused my servant to be very inconvenienced. And I think my servant got very angry about that. So now I'm, I'm dealing with my servant about, okay, uh, we need to look at this because the anger of God does not produce, anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so I'm, I'm talking to him, and I'm actually in the process of doing that right now as I'm teaching this. I'll be talking to him more in the next few days. Did you really respond to the tenant in anger? Because it looks like to me he did. And I think when it's all said and done, he's going to see that he did, and he'll repent and realize that he should not have done what he did in terms of how he responded because he got very verbal in his communication. 
So this is an example. We need to be very quick to hear and very slow to speak and slow to anger because this does not produce good fruit. Going on, it says, therefore, put away all filthiness. This word for put away here is a word for take off clothes. And that's an that's a, uh, imagery that uh, not only James uses, but Paul uses it as well, to talk about putting off clothing that that is a picture of unrighteous living, living that's inconsistent with God. And he sp- specifically notes two areas in this particular text of James. He says filthiness, which means immoral behavior. Behavior that is in, that's not ethically aligned with the will and ways of God. That should be put off. And then he says rampant wickedness. Uh, this rampant wickedness, a good way to think about that, is remnants of our fallen nature. These are, this are habits of living that we acquired before we came to Christ, and now we have not, we've not purified ourselves enough by virtue of walking with Christ to where those habits are gone. Those habits are still there. We've got to deal with those habits. So these are the things we have to put off. Bad habits, immoral behavior, and receive. Now, this is the second imperative. The first imperative is be quick to hear, and now it's receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, the word receive here, you know, is, is about to, to, to embrace, to accept, to to eagerly want this this implanted word and the word meekness kind of qualifies this meekness means to always believe that God is working good in every situation that's what meekness means many people think meekness means you know power you know power under uh, strength under um under submission or strength under control that kind of thing which that may be a may be okay but i think a better definition according to strong's dictionary is to always believe that God is working good in every situation. So that's the definition I'm, I'm going to use as we study James. So we receive with meekness. That is, again, whatever circumstances are, I know God is there working good. The, I receive the implanted word. And that implanted word now gives me the divine power to walk out the reality of Christ in me. The, the present tense of salvation is my continual transformation and alignment with the will of ways of God. And let me stress, if you are truly saved, then you will be engaged in being transformed. You see, living under the Lordship of Christ, living a transformed life is not an option. Many people think, I can come to Christ and get my ticket to heaven, then I can choose whether or not to be under the Lordship of Christ. That is not a biblical thought. Because I don't know where in Scripture to find support for that. The Scriptures tell us repeatedly that the sign of a true believer is someone who is being transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. Paul says in Galatians 4 that his whole agenda was was to wrestle with the reality of Christ being formed in people. That's what he thought Christian work was all about, helping Christ be formed in people. And this takes divine power. Because we can't do it alone. So the present tense of salvation, which is sanctification, is a a work of cooperation between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of man, working together so that mankind can grow and mature in Christ. So that's the idea there. There's no cooperation in initial salvation, in the past tense of salvation. That's a sovereign work of God, period. 
And now with the present tense, there is mankind has responsibility to now cooperate with the Spirit of God who is working to transform him. The implanted word has been put there not only to save us from, from the penalty of sin, but to save us from the power of sin. And so that's how we have the power. So he goes on to say that this implanted word is able to save your souls. Able, this is the word dunamai, which we get the word dynamite from, implies there's great power in the word of God that's planted in us. So as we grow in understanding the truth, as we study the word, as we absorb the truth, it is a source of power in us to affect this transformation, to sanctify us, to enable us to grow and mature in Christ. And so that's in that sense, it saves our souls. It's validating the reality that we are saved. And, of course, the future tense of salvation is also contemplated here because eventually the ultimate end will be when God sovereignly takes us out of this existence and glorifies us in the next existence. He doesn't glorify us for us. He glorifies us for himself. And so we have to keep that in mind. Future glory is all about Christ being glorified. So let me synthesize uh, this commandment here. This is the way I've articulated it. And obviously, these are just my words. There's nothing inspired about this. This is just my way of trying to think about the command. And I and I am told, according to the, what we call the Great Commission, I need to be trained to obey the commands of Christ. So I need to know what those commands are. Well, here's the command I need to understand so I can try to walk in this reality. So here's my synthesis of it. God's standard is his own righteousness, not our righteousness. He alone, through Christ, has established that standard. The only way to be acceptable with God is through the righteousness of Christ. At regeneration, that's the past tense of salvation, the word of truth was sovereignly implanted in us. It is then our responsibility to meekly, that is always believing that God is working good in every situation, receive the truth which is used by God to sanctify us, and that's the present tense of salvation, and to transform our deportment, that is our lifestyle, into alignment with our position. And our position is we have been saved by grace through faith, and now we need to live as those who have been saved by grace through faith. So that's the command. And now let me give you an illustration of what this looks like from the life of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, before he came to Christ, when he was known as Saul, uh, was very, very religious, and in many ways, one of the most faithful religious people you could find. He followed the law with a great deal of precision and diligence and faithfulness. He was a faithful servant, a faithful Jewish man of his day. And one of the ways he expressed his faithfulness was he sought to persecute that which opposed what he thought was true. And so there was a day when he's on his way to a city called Damascus, and he's going there to arrest people who profess to be Christians. So on his way, he has an encounter. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 5 say this about that encounter. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light shone from heaven around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Interesting, he recognized that whoever this was, it was the Lord. 
but I don't know who you are. And he said, that is the voice, the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see, Paul met Jesus that day. That probably was the moment when he was regenerated. He had nothing to do with it. He was actually on the road to do something very nefarious and wicked and contrary to the will and ways of God. And God intercepted him. He intervened into his life, shined the light of truth on him, and you notice he couldn't handle that light. He was blind then for several days afterwards. And God sovereignly revealed himself to Paul. Paul did not know Christ. Paul didn't really know God because his view of God was based on a wrong understanding of the Old Testament Scripture. You can be very knowledgeable of Scripture and have a totally wrong understanding of God and not know God. And sometimes I wonder if, as we watch many of these professing Christian leaders fall with moral failures and various things like this that happen so commonly in what we call the Christian community today, Sometimes I wonder how many of those men really know Christ. Because if you know Christ, you live in light of that reality. And many of these people are living very immoral, self-oriented, mammon-worshipping lives. And those are not reflected of Christ. So Paul is one who was intercepted. And now he's going to be trained to obey the commands of Christ. And that's what he launches into. For the next three years of his life, it's a training program. And here's a man who already knew the Old Testament, but he didn't know the God of the Old Testament. So he had to meet that God, namely Christ, and then Christ had to explain to him now the truth about how to read the Old Testament in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the end, Paul came to a very humble place, a very mature place. He came to a place where he recognized that 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 Christ is all in all. There's nothing superior to Christ. In fact, in Galatians 2.20, he says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In Philippians 1.21, Paul says this, For me to live is Christ. And die is gain. Now these are profound scriptures which point out the incredible growth and maturity that Paul engaged in, the sanctification process that he was involved with, growing and maturing, developing an understanding of who Christ was and what it meant to be walking in relationship with him. Paul then basically recognized that all that he thought was righteous was not righteous at all. And Christ had to redefine righteousness, and he learned that everything that he did that he thought was righteous before he came to Christ turned out to be nothing, nothing at all when compared to the righteousness of Christ. The greatest gift is indeed the implanted word. When the word is implanted in us, it is the agent to regenerate us, to engage us in the process of salvation. We are now born again. And we have been freed from the penalty of sin. And then we have begun to engage in growing and maturing in Christ through the word that's empowering us to be transformed into the image of Christ where we think and act like Christ. 
That's the present tense of salvation. We call that sanctification. And ultimately, when our race is finished on this earth and we have completed our assignment, we will enjoy the future tense of salvation, which is glorification. It's the the very removal of the presence of sin from us. And that's when Christ will be fully glorified in us. That is the fullness of salvation. And the fact that we're in sanctification says that we have been saved and that we will be saved in the future through the glorification of Christ. So, Lord, just give us grace to really grab a hold of this truth, to learn to walk in reality of what it means to know Christ and to be born again and to really be servants under the Lordship of Christ. May God give us grace to live like that in Jesus' name. Amen.